Welcome to the Forgettable Reads Podcast, a no-nonsense sleepcast for the rest of us. No creepy whispering, no bad spell music, no sleepy monotone. Just sincere reads of boring, bland material for all your verbal white noise needs. And now your host, Lauren Good. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to Episode 7. I am freshly off of a Buddhist uh, writing retreat with Natalie Goldberg called The Way of Writing, and it has been just an absolute godsend. Bowing out of that writing workshop today left me with so many different feelings. And (laughs) while I would like to talk about them, instead what I feel called to talk about is something else, Uh, something that I posted on my own personal social media channel that I think got very misinterpreted by a few folks. The reason why this idea has been percolating in my mind for such a long time is because not only for the many, many, many years as a retail manager, 11 years as a massage therapist, and however many decades of being an actor, I know how common and how growing of a problem work-life balance is for people. It is something I have experienced, and I have personally witnessed just how devastating the effects can be when people start to give up on themselves. They give up on themselves, or they stop taking care of themselves. And there are people very near and dear to me that could use (laughs) just a little bit of, of, of cheer and uplifting. There, there is a slogan. Um, I, I think this slogan exists in a lot of different religions, but I'm, I'm thinking of a slogan that, that I learned in my meditation center. And it says, don't give up on anyone or anything. And when we don't give up on anyone or anything, that also means ourselves. It means other people, but it also means ourselves. And for me, good habits is the manifestation of, of what that experience has been working with that theme, because it's something that definitely gets out of whack for me. Here's the problem. We live in a world where results talk, and we live in a world where everyone has to create and curate a brand on social media and have an online avatar. And so I had this crazy idea that if I could just get results, right, the thing everybody's looking for, with different aspects of self-care and empowerment, and then share them with people who are looking for something outside of themselves to hold on to, that that would be a beautiful thing. It was well-intended and very heartfelt. But people aren't broken. They are whole and healthy and beautiful. Most likely something is just clouding their perspective. That's definitely what I have learned over the last two months. But a cloud blocking the sun is not the same thing as the sun disappearing. So my friends, whoever needs to hear this, you are not fat. You have a type of tissue in your body that is called fat. The scale, the scale is not a judgment, although that's what we make it to be. What a scale does It just measures mass. That mass is made up of everything from your hair and your skin and your water and your muscle tissue and your blood. All of it 
It's just mass. Now, at the same time, it's changeable if you want it to be. I know there are folks who have received diagnoses that they're, they're hoping to reverse. And if that's the category you fall in, I highly recommend Dr. Greger's book, How Not to Die, or his other book, How Not to Diet. It is very research and science-based, and it talks a lot about food as medicine. Um, I, those are both books that I read last year and have a lot in common with Ayurvedic medicine and other things that I know, for me, help me not only to lose weight, but to feel more healthy and more vital. So my friends, you are not fat. My friends, you are not ugly either, nor are you stupid, and nor are you too young or old to follow your dreams. Trust me. You are enough. And whatever may be troubling you, I promise you will find the solution if you stay open to finding it. It is so very easy, especially right now, to give in to fear. I do it all the time. The amount of times over the last two months that I have been absolutely crippled by hypervigilance and needed to lay on the floor and do very basic breathing and exercises, I, I can't even tell you. I see other people also really giving in to fear. And I totally understand. And as a person who is both um, very intense and very sensitive, uh, very feeling and very analytical, I'm happy to help in whatever ways I can, if and when the people around me accidentally wind up in fearland, because it is something that happens on the human experience, you know? The thing I want to say tonight is that fear, it, it is, it's the biggest trap of them all, because it leaves you stuck in problem land and not in solutions. The last thing that I want to share with you about the writing workshop um, is that Natalie bowed us out on Saturday. I urge you, I beg you, everyone, awaken, awaken, awaken. Do not squander this precious life. Awaken, awaken, awaken. Do not squander this precious life. I intend to heed that call, and I certainly hope you will too. And now for tonight's reading. For tonight's reading, historical background. Just as it is impossible to outline all of the experiences that have made you who you are, it is impossible to outline all of the historical events that have contributed to the modern-day study of learning and behavior. Some particularly important contributions, however, are discussed in this section. Aristotle, Empiricism, and the Laws of Association Aristotle was a Greek philosopher who lived between 384 and 322 BC. Aristotle's teacher, Plato, believed that everything we know is inborn, which he conceived of as residing on our soul. Thus, learning is simply a process of inner reflection to uncover the knowledge that already exists within. Aristotle, however, disagreed with Plato and argued that knowledge is not inborn, but instead is acquired through experience. 
Aristotle's disagreement with Plato is an early example of the classic debate between nativism and empiricism, or nature and nurture. The nature perspective assumes that a person's abilities and tendencies are largely inborn, whereas the empiricist nurture perspective assumes that a person's abilities and tendencies are mostly learned. Plato is thus an early example of a nativist, and Aristotle is an early example of an empiricist. Aristotle also suggested that ideas come to be connected or associated with each other via four laws of association. Well, actually three, but he also hinted at a fourth that later philosophers expanded on. One, the law of similarity. According to this law, events that are similar to each other are readily associated with each other. For example, cars and trucks are readily associated because they are similar in appearance, wheels, doors, headlights, etc., and function. Both are used to carry passengers and materials along roadways. These similarities enable us to learn to view cars and trucks as instances of a larger category of objects known as automobiles. 2. The Law of Contrast just as events that are similar to each other are readily associated, so too events that are opposite from each other are readily associated. For example, on a word association test, the word black often brings to mind the word white, and the word tall often brings to mind the word short. Likewise, the sight of your unwashed car reminds you of how nice it would look if you washed it, and an evening of work reminds you of how enjoyable it would be to spend the evening not working. 3. The Law of Contiguity According to this law, events that occur in close proximity to each other in time or space are readily associated. This means close. For example, a child quickly learns to associate thunder and lightning because the sound of thunder soon follows the flash of lightning. Thunder and lightning are also perceived as coming from the same direction meaning that there is a certain degree of spatial proximity between them. Imagine how difficult it would be to associate thunder and lightning if the thunder occurred several minutes after the lightning flash and was perceived to have come from a different direction. 4. The Law of Frequency In addition to the three preceding laws, Aristotle mentioned a supplement to the law of contiguity, which is that the more frequently two items occur together, the more strongly they are associated. You will more strongly associate a friend with a certain perfume the more frequently you smell that perfume upon meeting her. Likewise, you will more strongly associate a term, such as the law of frequency, with its definition the more frequently you practice saying that definition whenever you see the term. As when using flashcards to help you memorize basic terminology. Aristotle's laws of association are not merely of historical interest. As you will read later, the laws of contiguity and frequency are still considered important aspects of learning. After all, how well could a dog learn to salivate to the sound of a bell if the bell preceded the presentation of food by several minutes, or if there was only one pairing of bell and food? Descartes, Mind-Body Dualism and the Reflex René Descartes, 1596-1650, is the French philosopher who wrote the famous line, I think, therefore I am. Fortunately for psychology, this was not his only contribution. 
In Descartes' time, many people assumed that human behavior was governed entirely by free will or reason. Descartes disputed this notion and proposed a dualistic model of human nature. On the one hand, he claimed we have a body that functions like a machine and produces involuntary, reflexive behaviors in response to external stimulation, such as sneezing in response to dust. On the other hand, we have a mind that has free will and produces behaviors that we regard as voluntary, such as choosing what to eat for dinner. Thus, Descartes' notion of mind-body dualism proposes that some human behaviors are reflexes that are automatically elicited by external stimulation, while other behaviors are freely chosen and controlled by the mind. Descartes also believed that only humans possess such a self-directing mind, while the behavior of non-human animals is entirely reflexive. Descartes' dualistic view of human nature was a major step in the scientific study of learning and behavior because it suggested that at least some behaviors, namely reflexive behaviors, are mechanistic and could therefore be scientifically investigated. It also suggested that the study of animal behavior might yield useful information about the reflexive aspects of human behavior. The British Empiricists Although Descartes believed that the human mind has free will, he also assumed, like Plato, that some of the ideas contained within it, like the concepts of time and space, are inborn. This notion was disputed by a group of British philosophers known as the British empiricists, who maintained that almost all knowledge is a function of experience. For example, one of the major proponents of British empiricism, John Locke, 1632-1704, proposed that a newborn's mind is a blank slate upon which the environmental experiences are written an empiricist concept that had earlier been promoted by Aristotle. The British empiricists also believed that the conscious mind is composed of a finite set of basic elements, specific colors, sounds, smells, etc., that are combined through the principles of association into complex sensations and thought patterns. A sort of psychological version of the notion that all physical matter consists of various combinations of the basic elements. Structuralism, the Experimental Study of Human Consciousness The British empiricists did not conduct any experiments to test their notion that the mind consists of various combinations of basic elements. Their conclusions were instead based upon logical reasoning and the subjective examination of their own conscious experience. Realizing the deficiencies in this approach, the German philosopher Wilhelm Wundt 1832 through 1920, proposed using the scientific method to investigate the issue. This approach was then strongly promoted by an American student of Wundt's, Edward Titchener, 1867 through 1927, and became known as structuralism. Structuralism assumes that it is possible to determine the structure of the mind by identifying the basic elements that compose it. Structuralists made great use of the method of introspection, in which the subject in an experiment attempts to accurately describe his or her conscious thoughts, emotions, and sensory experiences. To get a feel for how difficult this is, try to describe your conscious experience as you listen to the ticking of a clock. And just saying, I'm bored, doesn't cut it.
One thing you might report is that the ticks seem to have a certain rhythm, with the series two or three clicks being clustered together. You might also report a slight feeling of tension. Is it pleasant or unpleasant? Does it build or decrease during each series of ticks? As you can see, an accurate report of what we introspectively observe can be quite difficult. Although this approach to psychology died out by the early 1900s for reasons described shortly, its emphasis on systematic observation helped establish psychology as a scientific discipline. More importantly, its extreme emphasis on conscious experience as the proper subject matter for psychology resulted in a great deal of frustration and dissatisfaction, which laid the groundwork for the later establishment of a more objective approach to psychology known as behaviorism. Functionalism, the study of the adaptive mind. William James, 1842 through 1910, often regarded as the founder of American psychology, helped establish the approach to psychology known as functionalism. Functionalism assumes that the mind evolved to help us adapt to the world around us and that the focus of psychology should be the study of those adaptive processes. This proposition was partially derived from Darwin's theory of evolution, which proposes that adaptive characteristics that enables a species to survive and reproduce tend to increase in frequency across generations, while non-adaptive characteristics tend to die out. Thus, according to a functionalist perspective, characteristics that are highly typical of a species, such as the characteristic of consciousness in humans, must have some type of adaptive value. Based on such reasoning, functionalists believe that psychologists should not study the structure of the mind, but instead study the adaptive significance of the mind. Learning as an adaptive process was therefore a topic of great interest to functionalists. Moreover, although functionalists still made use of introspection and still emphasized the analysis of conscious experience, in this manner being similar to the structuralists, they were not opposed to the study of animal behavior. Again, following from Darwin, they believed that humans evolved in the same manner as other animals, and that much of what we learn from studying other animals might therefore be of direct relevance to humans. Not surprisingly, two of the most important figures in the early history of behaviorism, E.B. Thorndike, discussed in Chapter 6, and John B. Watson, discussed later in this chapter, were students of functional psychologists. Behaviorism the study of observable behavior. In 1913, a flamboyant young psychologist by the name of John B. Watson published a paper titled Psychology as the Behaviorist Views It. In it, he lamented that the lack of progress achieved by experimental psychologists up to that time, particularly the lack of findings that had any practical significance, a major difficulty, Watson believed was the then-current emphasis on the study of conscious experience, especially as promoted by the structuralists. In particular, the method of introspection was proving to be highly unreliable. Researchers frequently failed to replicate each other's findings, which often led to bitter squabbles. Watson mockingly described the types of arguments that often ensued. If you fail to reproduce my findings... It is not due to some fault in your apparatus or in your control of your stimulus, but it is due to the fact that your introspection is untrained. 
if you can't observe three to nine states of clearness in your attention, your introspection is poor. If, on the other hand, a feeling seems reasonably clear to you, your introspection is again faulty. You are seeing too much. Feelings are never clear. Watson, 1913. The difficulty, of course, is that we are unable to directly observe another person's thoughts and feelings. We therefore have to make an inference that the person's verbal reports about those thoughts and feelings are accurate. It is also the case that many of the questions being tackled by the structuralists were essentially unanswerable, such as whether sound has the quality of extension in space, and whether there is a difference in texture between an imagined perception of an object and the actual perception of the object. In a very real sense, experimental psychology seemed to be drowning in a sea of vaguely perceived images and difficult-to-describe mental events. Moreover, the notion that the proper subject matter of psychology was the study of consciousness was so strongly entrenched that it affected even those who studied animal behavior, as Watson explained. On this view, after having determined our animal's ability to learn, the simplicity or complexity of its methods of learning, the effect of past habit upon present response, we should still feel that the task is unfinished and that the results are worthless until we can interpret them by analogy in a light of consciousness. In other words, we feel forced to say something about the possible mental processes of an animal. Watson reasoned that the only solution to this dilemma was to make psychology a purely objective science, based solely on the study of directly observable behavior and the environmental events that surround it. All reference to internal processes, such as thoughts and feelings, could not be objectively measured by an outside observer, were to be stricken from analysis. By objectifying psychology in this manner, Watson hoped that psychology could join the ranks of the natural sciences, biology, chemistry, and physics, which had traditionally emphasized the study of observable phenomenon. Thus, as originally defined by Watson, behaviorism is a natural science approach to psychology that focuses on the study of environmental influences on observable behavior. Have a great night. <laughs> 